to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good afternoon. This is Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. Today, David Donaldson and I are together, and we'd like to talk about a very special issue, and that's the issue of women in addiction and women in recovery. Welcome, David. Hi, Susan. I'm very glad to be here today. Glad to have you. This is a topic that we have addressed a couple of times over the years, but I was inspired when I was invited to uh, be on another radio show. That's always interesting to be a guest on someone else's radio show. Um, and the topic was going to be women and alcoholism. So um, the person that I was doing that show with, um, uh, her name is Stephanie Wilder-Taylor, and she is um, an author and someone that I had done the Dr. Oz show with uh, a number of years ago. So she invited me to join her on her radio show out of Los Angeles, and I was thinking about all of the issues that we were talking about, specifically for women with alcohol, but um, women in addiction, um, when they're active in their addiction and also active in their recovery, there's some special issues around that that we have to appreciate both as providers of um, treatment, but also as family members, friends, and I guess for me at least, as women who, um, who may have the disease of addiction. So, important. Yeah. And, and I find that, that there really are some special issues for women in recovery at the various stages of recovery. Um, um, they, have, they have some significant difficulties in accessing the recovery system um, um, for, for some various reasons, but then also in maintaining the recovery process and maintaining the roles that they've, they've lived with for so long. Um, they, have, they have some specific, unique um, issues with the ongoing recovery process. That is um, very true. Some of it has to do with the language of recovery, and, um, and those are some of the topics that, that we'll probably need to address today. Some of it has to do with the epidemiology, and by that I mean um, the prevalence of addiction and different types of addiction in, um, in women in general and in the, in, the, in the country. So I think I've mentioned before that the, the way that I was taught initially many, 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 many years ago was that um, one of the risk factors for addiction was to be a man. And we now know that that is no longer a true statement. In fact, what we're finding is that between the ages of 12 and 17, so our youngest, most vulnerable population, women equal men or outrank men. Women actually are, have been known to use more alcohol, marijuana, cocaine, and cigarettes in the 12 to 17 years of age category than do their male counterparts. And when we look at the 18 to 25, more prescription drugs are used by women than men. And women and men are pretty equal in the use of almost all other substances. 
So this is a whole new ball game, and we're seeing a whole new group of women, young women in particular, coming into treatment that are very much active in their disease and using a wide variety of drugs that we never used to really even consider. And this, is, um, this has become a huge problem. And it's, it's interesting because when you think back on over the years, I mean, we actually used to teach that, that there were a lot more men in, in AA meetings and NA meetings because men had um, direct male-to-male tran- transmission of the genes for addiction through the father's side, and then they had, they had um, a higher per- per- chances of getting it through the, other, through the, to, through the mother's side. So there were, we, we would actually teach that men had a three times greater chance of inheriting the genes for addiction than women did um, um, for years. And it would look, you know, anecdotally like that was true because any meeting you went to would be 90% men. Um, and any treatment center that you went to, it would be 30 beds for men and four or five beds for women. Just very few women were coming into treatment, working a recovery program. We just didn't see it. And so it it made sense, at least at the time, that this was a male risk. Um, men were the ones at risk for developing this disease and manifesting it in their lives. Um, and I think that part of what we weren't looking at back then was was basic access issues. You know, women could not leave their house for a month and go to treatment when they had to stay home and take care of the children, and they had to, you know, have dinner on the table for, for their husband at night. So the idea that women were going to actually go to a 28-day program wasn't, wasn't necessarily happening, um, but our, our brains weren't really even geared around the, that idea. Um, I, and I think also, you know, when women were presenting for treatment back then, I'm really feeling old and dating myself <laughs> as I talk about this, but it used to be for Valium. Yes. You know, it was for anti-anxiety medications, anti-stress medications. Um, Mama's Little Helper was kind of the, the way it was referred to. And, and so, you know, they weren't being admitted for, for having drinking scotch or, or um, hard liquor, um, although when they did come there for that, they, they would certainly be um, full-fledged and it would, it would have detrimental um, issues really, really quickly. But when they were showing up initially, you would be seeing them for for medication issues. And I think that um, when you spoke about access, it's not just access to treatment that's different. It's access to medications. And so the idea that back in the olden days when you and I started working in this field, the women that were exposed to um, substances that release dopamine, they were getting the mother's little helper from their doctor. So they were not necessarily going out to the bar. They weren't going to the rave. They weren't hanging out at parties in the same way that men were. Men were uh, very often a part of the business world and going out and having three martinis at lunch Uh, using drugs and alcohol in a more recreational way, and we still see that. And by recreational way, I don't mean necessarily for fun, but associated with recreational or business 
associated functions. So women's access at that time, back in the day, was through their doctor, and often it was prescription pills. That still is one of the major ways that women are accessing medications. It's just in a much higher rate. So that entryway had more to do with the fact that women were not in the social scene in the same way and the same intensity that men were, and they weren't normally seen to be consuming regular alcohol and other uh, other drugs. They were they were getting into trouble with their prescription pills. That, that was what we, we saw regularly, and it would be either either anti anxiety or it would be diet, and so it would be either an amphetamine or it would be a something to help them relax and oftentimes it would be both of those um and 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 there was a time when when they would come in and they would talk about their life and they would talk about these high energy getting all these things done and managing all all of these various activities that just would wear you out to listen to them and then going into this crash um um where they just feel absolutely hopeless and they would be diagnosed with a bipolar disorder um, or they would be diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, um, and they would have a, a slew of other medications thrown at them, and they still weren't getting the the issue of addiction addressed. Very, very common. And the motivation for why women would begin to use drugs is very different because, again, as you mentioned, diet pills and weight loss medications Still, that is a primary motivator for women to begin using drugs, uh, particularly things like cocaine, methamphetamine, regular amphetamines, diet um, pills prescribed by their doctors, which are primarily amphetamines. These are the these are the substances that the women are still looking to. That's still one of the driving forces, and. That is a different motivation than we see for most men, although we do see some men that are motivated to lose weight and do also get into trouble sometimes with the amphetamines. But the women are using it for weight loss yeah, big time. And it's interesting how amphetamines keep coming back into our um, back into our system under different names. We'll talk about... Um, um, with with illicit drugs, how how the chemists will just change the molecule one little bit and re-release it on the street, and and it'll become a legal substance again, and and there's a lot of shock and horror that this is going on, um, um, with things like spice and and um, more of the designer type drugs that kids are using. But when you really stop and look at what's going on in the diet pill market, it's the exact same thing that that that. Mostly women, um, some men, but mostly women. With the name of the medication, the, it's still amphetamine. You, if you do a drug test, it still pretty much looks mm-hmm. identical under under um, lab um, specs. But it'll come out with a different name, and we'll, there'll be a, another slew of people that are dealing with with speed addiction, amphetamine addiction. Right on the street, we might call it. In the olden days, crank, which was methamphetamine, uh, now methamphetamine is called ice, but methamphetamine is also one of the diet 
drugs that um, the pharmaceutical companies are producing. So you can have the made it at home in somebody's bathtub form, or you can have the pharmaceutical grade, but at the end of the day, it's the same effect on the brain, and at the end of the day, it's often the same motivation, at least in the beginning, which is either I need to lose weight or I need to get my housework done or I need to get my studying done. I have too much to do, and I just have to get through this day. And that is a very big motivator, again, for most women, some men, but most women. So the, that particular motivation is a real important one. The other motivation that we often see for women that may be a little different for men is the motivation to try and get through the day, to have a difficult, a painful a lonely, sad situation, and they're looking for a substance that will help them feel better, that will raise their mood a little bit, that will take this horrible situation and make it a tolerable situation. So that is a a very clear motivator that we see for most women. That is different than for men. But I think for men, um, you know, if, if a man has a major loss, it's not unheard of for them to pull up to the bar and, and cry their tears in, in their drink and then to get up and walk away and it be over with. But that would be very socially unacceptable for, for a woman to do that. She would be labeled, and, um, and that label would stick. For sure. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the physic- physical reasons women are more likely to get into trouble than men. Please stay tuned. This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. Please join us at 4 p.m. on Tuesday afternoons. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. On Medicine on Call, we talk about more than medicine. It's about how to take control of your mind, body, and spirit. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and I have with me today David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center. We're talking about women and addiction and women and recovery. 
Before the uh, break, we talked about the different motivations that women and men have for beginning their use of drugs and alcohol and talking about the changes that we've seen over time in terms of the number of women who are openly manifesting the disease of addiction and the uh, ways in which women have caught up and in some ways exceeded the use of drugs and alcohol among their male counterparts. This is in the young age groups, the 12 to 17-year-olds and in the 18 to 25-year-olds. So we're seeing this major shift in um, drug use and in people seeking treatment. Some of the difficulties um, that we know that make women more likely to have issues with um, with the uh, use of drugs and alcohol have to do with the actual differences in the way that women metabolize different drugs, uh, the way in which their body size, their fat to water ratio differs than men, and also the ways in which their hormones have a significant impact, not only on cravings and uh, desire to use different drugs, but difficulties in stopping them. Uh, We've um, labeled this uh, effect um, a telescoping effect. And by that, we mean the fact that with um, smaller amounts of substances over a shorter period of time, women tend to have more physiological effects, more problems, more difficulties associated with their use. They're, for example, going to have a more difficult time with liver injury and brain injury with the use of alcohol than, they, than well, their male counterparts. Drinking the same amount of alcohol, if you take into consideration the size and shape of, <laughs> of the men versus the women, it's, um, it's pretty remarkable. And this is one area that um, I'm always so grateful to, to be working with you in particular and, and able to direct our women clients with a lot of their questions to come to you because they, they'll come in and, and they will not really um, recognize any of the differences. They, they won't see that they're processing ne- necessarily differently. They won't recognize that, that um, they're having some significant medical complications, um, but, but they really will show it. They, they seem like they're, you know, they have no leg muscles at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're um, um, seem like they're suffering from peripheral neuropathy at a much quicker rate, where their, their hands and their feet feel like they're walking on pins and needles, and, and their, their nerve sensation is, is much faster than you experience with males. They seem like they, they're, um, they're, they're, having blackouts and they're having a lot more processing issues um, and the denial impact and you know we'll often talk about women process alcohol different than men but that's kind of as far as we go um, in in the regular group setting and, and so having having the the ability to, to say this is something that, that, you know, spending some time with Dr. Blank or spending some time really looking at the impact of addiction on the female body is crucial. I know you do a talk with, with family group on this because it is such a, a difficult thing to get a grasp on. 
and it seems like it shouldn't make that much difference, but it, it's a huge difference. One of the difficulties that we've had over the years is that most of the research on drugs and alcohol, both illicit substances and pharmaceuticals, has been done on men. They want to um, think that they can take the data that they get looking at men in, um, in how medications or drugs affect them and transfer that directly to women and say this should be the same. On the other hand, they don't want to use women in these studies because they're so concerned that the hormones are going to play a role and change the level of outcome. Since a man's hormones vary from morning to night but not day to day, it's a much more consistent hormone bath that your brain is and body are going through. So they, um, they do not or haven't, at least until recently, made the studies in men. So it wasn't for a while that we realized women do have a lot of physiological differences, not just the obvious ones. The most notable one has to do with alcohol. And this is um, an enzyme in the stomach called alcohol dehydrogenase. And this particular enzyme is found in abundance in men and is missing in women. So when a man has a drink and they swallow it, obviously it goes directly to the stomach. And just being in the stomach, they they begin to break down the alcohol. They already begin the metabolization process of the alcohol, whereas for women, that process does not begin. So if the alcohol gets absorbed from the stomach into the bloodstream almost directly, one for one, drink for drink, ounce for ounce for women versus men will have some of that alcohol already metabolized. And this means that women are going to have a higher blood level of alcohol than will men. So even one drink will have the woman having a higher blood alcohol level than the man having the same amount of of a drink. You know, a a lot of the charts that you'll see for, for blood alcohol content will have male and female right. um, number of drinks and for the content. And, and even the recommendations for what moderate drinking is for male and female will be different. And mm-hmm. a lot of times the assumption is just um, um, body, body mass. Right. That you typically just assume males are larger and so males can handle more. But really, body mass has nothing to do with it. No, it's related to this particular enzyme. So for the woman, the alcohol gets absorbed into, the, into her bloodstream, and it has to go through the system, going through the brain, and then it goes to the liver before it reaches that first alcohol dehydrogenase enzyme. So our liver has a lot of that, both men and women. But women's uh, alcohol has already gone through the system once at a much higher level than a man because the man has already started um, and the alcohol has has begun to be... To process it and break it down. Exactly. So before it even hits the male brain, it's it's gone through the system, the filtering system. To some degree. To some degree. And the female brain, it's just bypassed that initially. Exactly. 
So hence we see that for women, the alcohol is hitting the brain much more intensely. So the toxicity of that same amount of alcohol is felt more directly for women because they're getting this literally bigger dose. The same for the liver. So for a man, they're getting a lesser dose to the brain because some of it's already been metabolized. And when it comes around through the circulatory system and hits the liver, they're also having less problems with the alcohol because it's not as toxic because there isn't as much. But for women, they're getting full, full amount hitting the brain and then full amount hitting the liver. So it's much more toxic to their liver, and I'm speaking about women here, and much more toxic to their brain. So this one little seemingly innocuous enzyme that's missing from women's stomach has a big uh, amount, um, a big impact on why women are going to have more blackouts, as you mentioned, more liver problems, more difficulty with the toxicity of the alcohol affecting them than it will men. Even drink for drink. And they're going to be more likely to be arrested for DUI if someone actually does a breathalyzer or a um, blood alcohol level. So even if they are the same size person, male or female size has absolutely nothing to do with it. It's the way the different bodies are processing the alcohol. Right. And the fact that For men, it's already started. By the time it hits their stomach, they're already starting to process it. And for women, it's got to go through the whole system before it gets to the liver. So that, um, that one little thing has a huge impact on women. Because, again, in this day and time, it's pretty rare. We kind of call them unicorns if someone comes in and they have one drug of choice. They might have one drug of preference, but they're almost always also using alcohol or nicotine or marijuana. If those aren't their drugs of choice, they're in the mix. I I think for women still, unless unless they're um, in a certain area or a certain um, location where some of the other drugs are more, more readily available, for women, when they come in, we still will see alcohol and generally wine um, or vodka, and we'll see a prescription medication, um, anti-anxiety medication, antidepressant medication that's trying to work on the serotonin system when um, when that's not really where the, the major problem is. And and so what I find... Um, is that, that, you know, we were talking earlier about how there was just so many more male recreational activities that involved alcohol in the olden days, but but there has been a real change in the marketing and in the selling of wine, that, that wine has now entered into a lot more of the recreational activities that women participate in than ever before. Um, it's not uncommon anymore to hear about wine at baby showers and wine at first birthday parties um, and wine at even Bible studies that you would never have heard of wine being at any of these locations in the past. You heard about wine being at a, a bonco party, um, <laughs> but not these other things. And it's, it's, it's really clear that, that wine is becoming a more prevalent part of a, um, women's social relaxation gathering times throughout the day. I was watching a show, 
I'm sure most of you are familiar with it, called Shark Tank the other night. And there were two women entrepreneurs who were marketing these portable wine bottles and wine glasses that you could put in your purse, in your diaper bag, that um, were able to keep the wine very cold and you could drink directly from them so you didn't need to have a thermos. Uh, you could just use this, and they were attractive in colors and um, and designs that would be very, very helpful um, in terms of being attractive to women. So direct marketing for for drinks, for... To go um, in their purse or in their diaper bag. In the d- purse or the diaper bag. Um, so when they're driving their kids over to the playground... There you go. They can take it right with them to soccer practice. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to take a look at some of the effects, um, the negative effects of drugs and alcohol on women. Thanks for listening. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction, and I'm Dr. Susan Blank. David Donaldson has joined me today, and we're talking about addiction in women and recovery for women. 
before um, the break, we were talking about some of the ways in which women metabolize drugs and alcohol differently and how this can have a, an increased not only effect on their subjective intoxication feeling, but also objectively we'll see this reflected in uh, higher liver enzymes, more impact on their bone marrow, They'll have uh, problems with anemia more likely, and not just because of, of having periods, but because their bone marrow has been um, affected by the alcohol. So they make fewer red cells and white cells and platelets. Some of the other difficulties um, are associated with... Um, you know, um, before you jump into some of those others... Yep. When you talk about fewer red blood cells and white blood cells and platelets, a lot of people, um, I, I think their, their thought is fewer, but I still have them, so they're still doing their job. I don't know that they necessarily really get what that means um, in terms of the body's ability to heal or to fight off disease or to fight or to repair itself from injury. Um, and, and one of the other areas that we talk about with, with women because of, of what you were saying in terms of how much faster it enters mm -hmm. the bloodstream and also that, that women have more fatty tissue, so right. it stores more in the bloodstream, but also that the brain and the organs are exposed to the toxicity of alcohol, alcohol longer. Um, so they're having more breakdown, and they're also not having um, the ability to heal that, that men, are, men have. That is um, very correct because the toxic effect that it has on the bone marrow, for example, the large bones in your body, in your arms, your upper arms, and your upper legs, this is the site at which, as an adult, most of your blood cells are made. So your red cells carry oxygen so that you've got energy going to all parts of your body. White cells fight infection, and the platelets are responsible for clotting blood. When alcohol... Uh, is interacting with that bone marrow, one of the things that happens is that they stop making the cells as quickly as they're needed. And blood cells are different than any other cells that I know of in that rather than being small when they're newborns, when they're babies, and bigger as they get older, the blood cells are just the opposite. So they're bigger when they are new and as they get older they get smaller and they have to be a certain size to travel easily through our circulatory system so when your body begins to be producing fewer of these blood cells sometimes the immature cells are released prematurely so now you've got these large awkward cells that are released into your bloodstream they're bigger than they should be they're immature so they don't do as good of a job as you need to carry oxygen. So even, even if you had the normal numbers, if they were all immature, you would have more shortness of breath, you would have more fatigue because of that. So couple that with the fact that now not only are my cells inefficient, but I have fewer inefficient cells, and so fatigue becomes a big part of the problem for women. They can't fight off infections because the same thing is happening with their white blood cells. They're not making as many, and the ones that are being released are 
immature, so they're not able to fight off the different types of infection. I, I feel like I recently read that, um, I feel like that, that women were twice as likely, I don't know if that's exactly right, but they're much more likely to be diagnosed with a medical condition rather than alcoholism. Um, when they're presenting, and it'll, this will be one of the reasons they present with fatigue, um, and, and they won't be asked. Um, if they are asked, not very extensively, because we don't want to be rude, um, about the, their drinking patterns. Um, and, and so they won't necessarily be in denial, but they won't necessarily disclose the amount of their drinking because they don't necessarily see it as abnormal. But they're having direct consequences right. from it. And often the doctor can see it if they know what they're looking for in their blood test. But they'll just call this anemia as opposed to this is anemia related to alcoholism. Anemia meaning fewer red blood cells than you need. So they're looking at the fewer than you need. And, of course, because women have periods, they often lose more blood cells each month than would a man. Uh, so it's easy to just think this is anemia related to that as opposed to anemia related to alcohol. And um, that anemia related to alcohol is actually worse in the sense that you're more fatigued than someone else who has regular old anemia with the same level of red blood cells because your cells that you do have aren't working well. Because they're large and awkward. They're large and awkward. And unfortunately, this is the way that we also see the other problem that is increased in folks who use alcohol, but greatly increased in women, and that's cardiovascular disease. Because now you've got blood cells that are too big for the little tiny um, arterioles and capillaries. And so they start clogging up these small, tiny little blood vessels with these big, awkward, immature red blood cells. And now you're at risk for having blood clots and heart attacks and strokes. And we know that that risk lasts for at least 90 days after they stop drinking because it takes that long for your body to replace all of your red blood cells. So... You've got a, another problem in that when you use alcohol, you wash out all your B vitamins, and that affects, again, the size and shape of your red blood cells. So you're vitamin deficient, your um, cells are inefficient, and um, they're clogging up your blood vessels, and they're causing problems. The other problem is you don't have enough platelets. And these are really important because that's what clots your blood. If you bump yourself or bruise yourself or cut yourself, the platelets will make sure that they get in there and stop the bleeding so that you don't bleed out and have horrible problems. When you don't have enough platelets and the platelets that you do have are immature, suddenly you've got a real problem. And we'll see some of our patients come in and they are covered in bruises just covered in them and they have no idea oh i just bumped the table and they're not exaggerating they did just bump the table but the bleeding and the bruising is terrible and it um and it can be really dangerous particularly if you fall and hit your head 
we talk a lot about the subdural hematomas that happen when someone falls, hits their head, and there's bleeding into the lining of the brain. And this happens very frequently with alcoholics. Um, And when you don't have enough blood clotting ability, then the bleeds are going to be worse, and you're going to have a lot more problems, and sometimes they're difficult to diagnose. Well, and if you combine that with, with the reality that they are going into blackouts, and so they're not retaining those memories, and, and part of what, what when people have blackouts, um, they tend to get really pretty good at, at creating stories to fill in the gaps. Exactly. Um, because they don't necessarily want you to look at them like there's something wrong or like they're crazy. Um, so they will tell what sounds like a very, very vivid, honest, real story um, that's 100% fictional. We call that confabulation, where they're filling in the blanks um, and they're, they're giving the answer that would be most reasonable given the question asked, but not necessarily having anything to do with what really happened. Unfortunately, this is, um, this is really difficult. The other health risk that we are seeing increasingly in women is that of HIV and AIDS. We don't talk about this so much anymore, not because it's not around, um, because it is more treatable, and so it's not the automatic death sentence that it used to be. But the highest number of um, new cases of HIV and AIDS occurs in girls and women over the age of 13. And um, their African Americans and Latinos appear to be even more affected disproportionately uh, because of having uh, heterosexual sex with a man who has HIV or their own use of IV drugs or working as um, sex workers related to their use of drugs and alcohol. So women are very vulnerable. If they've got immature white cells, they're not going to be fighting off the infection. Their body's not going to respond well, and they're going to suffer a lot um, with um, HIV and AIDS. It's a population that we haven't really thought about. And when we see that these women are also of childbearing age, we know this also creates the risk of transmission to their child, not just of the risk of fetal alcohol syndrome or needle neonatal abstinence syndrome, which is the baby that's born addicted to the drug their mother was using, but now the transmission of HIV and AIDS. Well, and I think that this area in particular is, is an issue that um, was talked about. You know, there was a lot of emphasis on reaching out to the minority communities and to, to these populations in the late 80s and in the 90s exactly, when the crisis was still um, growing and when there was still no options and no solution. And, and there was a, a big emphasis, I know, with, with, uh, um, with working with Grady and a lot of the, the hospitals that were directly serving this, this population. It was, it was regularly emphasized, but it's something that's just kind of gone under, underground it's become people have gotten to the idea that this is just a, a long-term illness and there's treatment for it, and it's something that stopped being talked about. Um, um, but the reality is it's something that, that 
is still impacting on a lot of lives, and it's also something that people are still dying from. Exactly. The, the treatments that, that help sustain life don't work for everybody, and when their bodies are already so broken down... Yes, um, they're, they're at much more risk. We're going to take a break now. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the uh, ways in which we have treatment issues related to women and addiction. Please stay tuned. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. You're listening to America's Web Radio. Today I have David Donaldson with me from the Atlanta Healing Center, and we are talking about women in addiction and women in recovery. There are a couple of additional things that I think are important to mention, and that's the fact that some really good studies have been done showing that During certain phases of menstrual cycle, women are going to have more difficulty with cravings and more difficult problems with withdrawal. So the first part of the cycle seems to be a time when women are less likely to struggle and have fewer symptoms of withdrawal and be able to manage cravings and detox pretty well. The second phase of their cycle after they've ovulated, uh, this is a much more difficult time. It's particularly a difficult time to try and stop smoking. Now, that's not that we are going to say, okay, don't 
try it now, wait, wait. No, if you're ready to try it, try it now. But just be aware that we will probably need to be giving you higher doses of nicotine replacement, higher doses of supplements to help with cravings, and, um, and that you're going to need to understand, just like we have to understand sometimes PMS happens, it's during this same period of the time that um, with the high surge of hormones, it's just going to be more difficult. Sometimes just knowing that makes it much easier to manage and help, hopefully people don't feel quite so frightened about, oh, is this how it's always going to be? No, it's not. Right now it may be harder, but we can support you through that. So it's important to understand that difference and to be um, there with some answers and some solutions to make those um, different times of their um, of their menstrual cycle easier for them to deal with and manage their disease of addiction. I think it's really interesting how much of the, this research has been done in relation to nicotine as opposed to other drugs of abuse. And, and part of that in the sense is that, that women are still... Um, the first group to start smoking. Yes. You know, the because the, we often talk about the earliest, what was your first drug of exposure, um, and it's it's forever been nicotine. I guess it's changed now to, to marijuana. But still, when it comes to smoking, it's still women that start first, and it's always related to diet or related to looking cool or whatever. Diet, I guess, mostly, um, and craving withdrawal or craving management for sweets and other things. Um um, but so nicotine has has hits women earlier and has a much greater impact on women's long term health. Um, bad for both, but but yes. but really, um, in terms of of all the different systems that nicotine settles into and causes major illness. Um, and so the studies that they're doing in terms of when is going to be the most successful time for women to quit, I just think that's pretty fascinating. Um, I do too, and I think some of that comes out of the fact that um, different medical specialties like the pulmonologists and the oncologists, the cancer and the lung doctors have really been trying for many, many years and unfortunately and embarrassingly for the field of addiction medicine, they've been trying for a long time to get women to stop smoking and um, not so much um, our addiction medicine situation. So a lot of this has been done, research has been done because of the high rate of morbidity and mortality associated with women smoking. It's much more dangerous for women to smoke than men and it's also harder for them to quit. So they need a lot more support and understanding some of these differences I think can help us uh, channel and um, modify the treatment plan so that women can be more successful. Part of the um, those studies that, that we often talk about is that the thing that kills most alcoholics is nicotine. Right. You know, and we talk about um, when they're in treatment, the number of people who come out of treatment who've been a non-smoker and are now back to a pack-a-day smoker is a, a massive number that they go to treatment to quit alcohol or drugs and they come out addicted to um, nicotine. Um, and, and so really helping them to recognize that now is the time to quit, um, that the cravings are going to be um, 
difficult at whatever time. But now, since you're dealing with the cravings of alcohol and you're dealing with the cravings of, of whatever, that now is the time to go ahead and face all of these things. Right, and do it together. It's going to be easier in the long run, and your chance of being in good, solid recovery increases by 25% if you stop smoking at the same time you stop the other drugs that brought you to treatment. So there are many advantages in doing this, but understanding where some of the struggles might be and providing extra support during those times is going to be really helpful for our women. There are a number of other barriers that we know of um, for women being able to get into treatment, and some of those are related to financial um, situations. Some of them are related to um, all kinds of other economic um, problems, like women are more likely to be underemployed and underinsured. Women often don't have um, access to funding that men might have for treatment. They're um, often struggling with trying to find child care to help them be able to have the time and the ability to go into treatment. And um, transportation is also sometimes a real uh, barrier for women, and I think that's an important thing. But, David, earlier you mentioned a a more, (laughs) probably from a psychological standpoint, a more difficult problem, and that's um, the issue related to roles and expectations. And and I think that that's really crucial because because they have, um, in their own minds, some really strong expectations of what they should be doing at at whatever stage in their life and men have them too and you know they may work out of the home but they're still expected to um, take care of the meals and take care of the child care and they're still expected to be a good hostess and to throw nice holiday parties and to be able to um, be completely comfortable in doing that and and, um, so they're expected really men might not say um, I want you to still be able to have one drink, but they want their spouse to be able to still have one drink um, and and not lose control. Um, the divorce rate is still very, very high for women who have addiction. It's still very high for women in, in early recovery. Um, and part of that is because, you know, recovery becomes a full-time job. You've got to focus on you have a brain disease that's going to kill you unless you really dedicate yourself to going to getting the support you need to help you rebuild a life that includes abstinence. And when that also means you're not able to um, necessarily work or take care of the kids or host a party, then that creates issues for a lot of families. Absolutely, and I think this creates issues for the women themselves. Um, because they um, seem to be even more acutely aware of this is my disease and I don't want this to have to impact anybody else. So I, I don't want to have to tell somebody it's really bothering me that you're sitting there with a drink or I really can't be in a house where alcohol is still all over the house or I can't go to this business dinner where we're going to sit through a two-hour dinner and people are going to go through 14 bottles of wine. I can't do that, and that's really hard for me. But women don't want to have those conversations because they don't want their disease to 
interfere with anyone else's fun. And, and it, it really often puts them in very dangerous situations and often, unfortunately, we see relapses coming out of this kind of uh, trying to white-knuckle it through an event. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's also this dynamic of if I'm not there, someone else will be there. Um, and it's not necessarily spoken all that much, but it, it's a reality that, that there's still a competition that, that men put against women against each other. Um, it starts early in high school years and definitely thrives during the, the, the bar years, the dating years. Um, and it's, it's, you see it all the time on television with the, the housewives of all of the various cities, and, and you're seeing them in these battles. Um, that really impact a person's ability to recover. Because if I take time out from life to recover, who's going to step in and take my place? Um, and I think that's a real pressure for, for a lot of women who um, are, tr- are trying to get clean but also have a place. And it's, it's very scary for them, uh, especially if the family is uh, not supportive or if their significant other doesn't want to tell anybody. Uh, because of embarrassment or whatever. So now uh, the, the woman is uh, left trying to negotiate uh, babysitters and someone to take their child to soccer practice without saying, I have a major brain disease that is potentially lethal and I'm in treatment for it and I need help. Uh, now we have to tell secrets and stories, which in many ways is the um, addictive behavior. So the keeping of the secrets, the pretending that everything's okay when it's really not, are some of the tendencies that women have that put them at a lot of risk, a greater risk than a man, um, because they, um, they are worried about their, their position in the family and their position in the community. Um, the number of times I'll be working with, with a patient who, who's going into their second year of recovery and they're still dealing with the issue of what family members know and don't know is, is, um, is still pretty extensive. And we um, at the Atlanta Healing Center take it very seriously and that's why we want family members to be involved. We want spouses and children and parents um, to be there so that we can help educate them and that we can give a voice. Recovery is very possible for women. They respond well to treatment. They have lots of motivation to be in recovery and to be um, active in their lives again. So treatment is uh, very possible, but you have to make sure that your treatment team understands the special needs of women. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, David, for being here. And thank you all. We'll see you next week on Detailing Addiction. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. 
So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. On Medicine on Call, we talk about more than medicine. It's about how to take control of your mind, body, and spirit. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. 